From Boise, Idaho, in Idaho Education News, welcome to Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. A lot to get to this week. Things really feeling like they're ramping up uh, across the state. Schools are getting ready to open or are opening. And a lot of news uh, breaking out this week, starting with uh, a list that we've been waiting for for quite some time, uh, the state's list of high-performing schools, but but also low-performing schools. Yeah, this was one of our most read stories of the summer, even over just the course of a couple of hours on Wednesday afternoon when it came out. But uh, as promised, the State Department of Education calculated and then released the list of the lowest performing, the bottom 5% lowest performing public schools and charters in the state of Idaho. Uh, 29 schools uh, made the list. We have the list for you. If you have not seen it yet, we have an interactive map that you can kind of click through and find out if your local school uh, is on the list. And so you can head to the homepage at idahoednews.org and look for the uh, story to find out if your school or a school in your area is on the list. But this was something that we had been bracing for for a while, Kevin, and this is part of the state's new accountability plan. Right, right. I mean, as part of the federal Every Student Succeeds Act, states are supposed to put together an accountability plan. Idaho hasn't had one for several years. Now, part of the new accountability plan calls for doing just this, for for naming the lowest performing schools in the state and then trying to put some resources into those schools to uh, to try to uh, engineer a turnaround. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so obviously we're well aware that this is a controversial issue, that people have strong feelings about this, that not everyone agrees uh, with, uh, with publicizing the list. But we didn't come up with the criteria uh, or anything like that. We're just reporting on, on what the list is. But I talked um, a couple of times over the last month with Carlin Laraway, uh, the State Department of Education's Director of Assessment and Accountability, and a friend of the podcast she's been on before. But we've talked about how, yes, the identification is a component of this accountability plan, but the point of this is not to name and shame the schools. The whole point of this is to identify uh, maybe areas where they fell short, maybe things that aren't working, maybe areas of concern, but the whole point is to surround these schools, to wrap them with resources. And so what are we talking about here? Each of the schools will be given a kind of an education and a leadership coach or a consultant. Now, the folks at the State Department of Education refer to this person as a capacity builder. So each of the 29 schools will have a capacity builder. And the whole idea is, is that the building principal and teachers and different personnel will get together and form a leadership team. And they will work with this capacity builder to develop kind of a turnaround plan, to develop some strategies uh, for improvement and hopefully getting off of the list. They're also going to the schools that are classified as Title I schools, you can basically think of that as a complicated way of saying schools with um, low income right. levels, high, high poverty high levels. Poverty uh, mm-hmm. So the schools that are classified as Title I schools, I think that's all but, say, six or so on that list, they're going to also split about $2.1 million in federal funding that can be used to help them uh, target uh, different strategies for improving instruction. And so uh, the timing, obviously, is rough both for educators and parents getting geared up for that first day of school this week or in the coming weeks, and then the list comes out. But the whole idea is to say something may not be working here. We've identified some shortcomings or deficiencies. The main reasons why schools are on the list is because of low levels of student 
achievement mm-hmm. and because of they're not showing improvement. Those are the Lack main student, reasons. Shortage of student growth. Uh, yeah. Low student growth. And so the idea is to push the pause button, get together, uh, surround these schools with resources, and hopefully within three years, they can turn it around. Now, the accountability is, is a controversial topic in public schools, just sort of on its face. But Idahoans at the public meetings I went to in 2016 and 2017, generally speaking, were pretty adamant that they did not want an overall summative rating. So what does that mean? We saw that before in the old five-star rating system that was repealed, I think, back in 2014, the tail end of Tom Luna's administration. Yeah. But that had a summative rating. And, and so that was either five stars or two stars or two popcorn bags or whatever <laughs> indicator you want to use. People hated that. It was confusing. Um, people were confused about why their own school was on there. And so I don't know. It seemed arbitrary. As yeah. We wrote about it back a few years ago. I mean, schools would go from, from wild swings from like almost one star to five star or something like that. And it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense how that was happening. It, it, I think for a lot of folks, it probably came across as an arbitrary ranking system. Oh, for sure. And so Idahoans at these public meetings I went to and that the State Department of Education and the State Board of Education participated in, they were adamant that they wanted multiple measures of student achievement to be factored into this thing. They didn't want one rating based on one high-stakes test. And we've heard that over and over again, right? So student achievement, student growth are factors in this new accountability system. But as is English language proficiency, uh, there are school quality indicators such as surveys that were given at the K through 8 level asking students if they were committed students or not. That's the a survey factor. process is going to continue and probably grow now in, in years to come. The yep. State Board talked about that just this week. Yep, just this week. Uh, at the high school level, graduation rate uh, is a factor. Both uh, They're going to be looking at four-year and five-year cohort rates going forward. Uh, but so graduation rate is a factor. Kind of advanced opportunities, uh, college and career readiness in- mm-hmm. index is part of it. So how many advanced opportunities courses are students participating in, AP courses, interna- international baccalaureate courses, yeah. uh, things like professionally recognized certificates all count. And so it is multiple measures, and they were all weighted. And so once the measures are calculated and weighted, uh, the schools on the list are literally the ones who scored at the bottom 5%. Mm-hmm. And so that's how they came up with it. And then the next steps, what we would expect to happen next, are the schools to begin meeting with their leadership coaches, uh, for principals and school boards uh, to get together and start developing those turnaround plans is what we expect to happen next. But this is going to set off at least a couple years of stories for us. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about how it's really going to become a beat, and we have just sort of a couple ideas of some things that we're going to do over the coming weeks and months. Right. But we're going to go out and visit some of these schools, right? Yeah, I, I think we we need to go out and, and talk to some of these uh, teachers and administrators and parents and, and kids and, and get a sense of what what happens now. Now that you're on this list, what happens and what are the next steps? And you know, obviously, if you're listening to this, if you're in one of these communities, if you're a parent, if you're an educator in one of those communities, uh, a school trustee, what have you, uh, or, or a student even in one of these schools, uh, you know, get in touch with us. Uh, you can talk to us uh, via email or on our Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You know, it does open up to to a lot of stories and a lot of coverage and you know hopefully we can try to 
you know, put these rankings into some sort of a context because, you know, I think when people see that that list of 29 schools, uh, you really do need to kind of place it in context. Um, you know, what, what, what's happening? What, what, how did some of these schools make the list? You talked about Title I as an example. Uh, poverty is definitely, there's definitely a correlation here between uh, poverty rates and uh and performance and ranking on the scale. You looked at free and reduced lunch rates on Wednesday, which is one measure of poverty, and I think you found 20 or 21 of the 29? At least 21. Yeah. This is according to the state's figures uh, in terms of free and reduced lunch eligibility. Um, and, and that's kind of become the, the standard that's used to measure uh, poverty rates in schools. It's not the only measure, but sure. it's the one that's used most commonly. So at least 21 of the 29 schools. Uh, have uh, poverty rates above the state average when you look at those free and reduced lunch rates. And I say at least 21 because there are a couple of schools where uh, the data isn't available. It isn't on the SDE site. So, you know, poverty is definitely a consideration. And the fact that a lot of these schools, a good number of these schools are alternative schools. Yeah. So by nature, they're going to be um, serving students who are who are at risk, who, who have, uh, you know, you know, who are facing some some special challenges. I mean, you've got alternative schools in the classic sense of the word. You've got a virtual charter school on, on this list, and, and the virtual charters have, have struggled with a lot of uh, student growth and student achievement metrics because, uh, here again, this is a school that uh, often is going to serve a, a high number of students who are at risk, who are transferring out of the traditional schools for whatever reason. So you have to look at those demographics. And, and as we dig into this process here over the, the weeks and months and years to come, uh, we're going to be very mindful of that. There was at least one surprise, though, on the list. There was one school that made the, uh, the list of the 29 schools that was a bit of a head-scratcher. We were talking about it before we turned on the microphone. It, yeah, and it's in eastern Idaho, and I think we're going to take a closer look uh, at this next week. But just right off the bat, there was one school uh, that I kind of wondered about before the list even came out, and yes, it did end up being on the list, but that was Madison Junior High over in Rexburg in eastern Idaho. And a couple of days before the list came out, I asked uh, the folks at the State Department of Education about this because I we realized that participation in standardized tests is also a criteria. There's this whole issue with 95% participation. That's a, a kind of a a touchstone that schools right. are expected to reach. And so if you remember... And that's a big part of the ESA. Uh, yeah. that's federal part funding of the federal law. is rolled into this, but the, the law are, says... States are expected to have some sort of a test that 95% yeah. of their kids are taking. You have to have a test, and it has to be aligned to your standards, and the, and the kids have to take the test. And so think back three years ago or so, um, the Madison School Board, Superintendent Jeff Thomas and parents were very concerned about taking... Idaho standardized tests, which were aligned to Idaho core standards, which are aligned to Idaho core standards. Initially, they said they weren't going to give the test or they were going to allow parents to opt out. The governor kind of intervened and sent a letter uh, to the school district there. And so the district sort of held its nose and reluctantly administered the test. But enough parents uh, were worked up or concerned that uh, they asked their, their kids to be opted out. And so I worked with our data analyst, analyst Randy Schrader, on Wednesday and Thursday, and less than 85% of the Madison students took the tests in 2015-2016 and 2016-2017. We haven't seen the most recent numbers yet. We're going to look at those 
Um, and that may have been the main factor pushing them onto the list. We're going to take a closer look at that next week. But you were talking about all the things that make that interesting. Not only do actions have consequences, but we're talking about federal funding here, right? It, it, it's just it's a, it's a very interesting twist in, in the saga because, you know, the Madison district's concerns, Jeff Thomas, the superintendent in, in Madison, a lot of his concern with the the SBAC test was a concern over Common Core. And, yeah. and a lot of the concern over Common Core has been this notion, not exactly a, 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 an accurate notion, but a notion that this is a federal uh, set of uh, academic standards what have you. <laughs> At any and rate, that's not it, new. It, we've heard that we've heard controversy heard over Common Core we, for we've years. We've heard it for years. So now you're at a point where because of the skepticism about the test aligned to Common Core, you're going to have uh, this intervention program in the school. Uh, federal dollars going into the school, uh, ironically enough, uh, designed to try to improve performance. And, and you know, I, I think it kind of begs the question, what is the performance at the school really? And what are, what's the student achievement, student growth going on if here they had really? Met, if they had met the 95%, would they otherwise be on the list? We want to answer that question, yes or no. If they had met the 95% testing threshold, would they be on the list, yes or no? If no, are they getting federal monies that could have actually really benefited a struggling school? To a school that really does have performance have made issues, the list. maybe some demographic yeah. issues uh, underlying those. Yeah, I mean, there's... There's a lot there, and, and there are just a lot of interesting, you know, subtexts to this whole thing. I mean, there's Madison, uh, Plummer, Worley in North Idaho. All three of their schools, from K through 12, um, are on this list of low-performing schools. So, you know, that becomes kind of a, a, a systemic question of what what does Plummer Worley uh, do as a district, and that's a district that's, uh, you know, you know, that serves a, a, a you know, Coeur Indian tribe to a large extent. So. You know, you've got some demographic uh, you know, challenges in, in that district, and some, you know, and now you're you're on this uh, this list, and you know, how do you work systemically in, in a district like that? Uh, you know, to try to uh, to try to turn this around. Lots of stories, lots of storylines to to follow here. But please do get in touch with us. That was a great suggestion, Kevin, that you had at the beginning, either through Facebook or email. If your school is on the list, if you have questions about why you're on the list, questions about what happens next, if you want to share your plan, uh, please reach out to us. Also, at the same time, uh, on Wednesday, State Department of Education re-list, released a list of top-performing schools. And we kind of broke out 47 top-performing high schools that... Uh, we're performing in the 90th percentile in any one of about five different metrics, uh, math, English, language, arts, graduation rates, I believe may have been one of them, but a number of different factors. And so there may be an opportunity for some of these high-flying schools to share best practices with some of the low-performing schools, whether it's collaboration uh, or getting the leadership teams together. But there may be an opportunity to collaborate and see, okay, our neighbors down the road seem to be doing really well in, let's say, math, maybe we can talk to them about what's working and what isn't working. And so maybe there are some ideas for collaboration, um, but it's something we're going to be spending a lot of time on, looking at the schools, looking at the numbers, looking at why certain schools are on the list, and then looking at those turnaround plans. And, and, and yes, we published the list, and yes, we will be visiting some of the schools. Our, 
our intention is not to single out a school and, and, and point at them and, and shame them and laugh at them, um, but to talk about what's going on, to talk about uh, what their plans are, what their strategies are. And we, we've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the Horseshoe Bend uh, mm-hmm. School District found itself in a similar situation where they were basically identified as a failing school under the five-star rating system. Uh, but rather than get defensive about it or get their backs up about it, they worked with one of those education and leadership consultants. They took a hard look at student data, and they started building accountability into everything they did. And all of the educators there under the leadership of Cora Larson and the building principal uh, and the superintendent took ownership of student achievement and viewed it as a challenge. And then they turned around three years later and were recognized as a blue ribbon school. And so it's not the end, you know, this isn't the last word here if if your school is on the list. Um, And there are certainly, this is just one measure of looking at school performance. But there can certainly be a light at the end of the tunnel, as we've documented in, in Horseshoe Ben's case. Right. Um, so go to idahoednews.org. You can see the see our stories, see the lists, um, and get in touch with us through idahoednews.org. Our com- contact information is on there. We uh, would like to hear from you. All right. Uh, that was not the only big story this week. Kevin, on Thursday, you took a close look at immunization records Uh, and school districts across the state. You built some graphics. You've been researching this for a long time, but there were a couple of surprising findings in your report. Uh, What did you look at and what did you find? Right, I mean, this is a perennial topic in in Idaho, and this has been a a sensitive issue in Idaho for a long time, Uh, immunization rates and immunization opt-out rates. So what I I tried to do here was look at um, health and welfare's numbers in terms of uh, students who show up at school uh, fully immunized. And there are, uh, there are a battery of immunizations that are, uh, that are set out for kindergartners, first graders, and seventh graders, and we, we explain that in the story. The immunization rate, and it's really hard to pin down the precise number, but anyway, the, 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 the conservative estimate is that about 87% of kids are showing up fully immunized, and that number hasn't moved around very and much. And that's the average across the state, that's right? That's the average across the state. And Different that's important districts to remember. Have, yeah. uh, those numbers vary widely. Um, what I found was that, uh, by and large, in uh, larger districts, more urban districts, your Boise's, your West Ada's, Nampa's, uh, Bonneville, on down that list, in most cases, those large districts have higher immunization rates than the state average. Charter schools and private schools, and and they do uh, have lists for the private schools as well here, those tend to skew lower than the state average. And and health and welfare is not exactly sure why that is, but uh, that's something that jumped out at me. And when you start to look at some of these rural districts, you see some wide variations and you see uh, pockets of the state where you've got Lots of parents opting out of immunizations and lots of missing records, lots of incomplete records, lots of cases where parents are just not turning in their immunization records for one reason or another. I took a close look at Boundary County mm-hmm. as kind of the, uh, the example. And Boundary County, Idaho's northernmost county, very conservative part of the state, uh, very politically conservative, socially conservative, um, has some of the highest opt-out rates in the state and also has high numbers of parents who just do not turn in their records, uh, their kids' records for one reason or another. So 
bottom line, uh, looking at their seventh grade class, and we're talking about 124 kids, so it's not a tiny class of, of students. It's not that small a, a school district. 124 seventh graders in the Boundary County District in uh, last school year, about a fifth of those students were adequately immunized to where the state knew that these students were up uh, to date on their immunizations. When you say a fifth, let's just be clear, it's about 20%. About 20%. One in five kids in that seventh grade class were documentably, provably, demonstrably adequately immunized to where the state knew that these these students were were current. The rest, large numbers of uh, students where the parents said, for whatever reason, and you know, that can be a religious objection, it can be a personal objection, it can be a medical exemption, but you have to go through a doctor to get that. For whatever reason, you have large numbers of students uh, not immunized because their parents uh, you know, exercise their veto power over, over immunizations. Yeah. And then you have large numbers of records that are just missing. And I, I had a long conversation, a really good interview with uh, the school nurse in Boundary County who said, you know, look, we know which parent, we know which kids uh, we don't have records for. I mean, it's not a secret. We know where the where the holes are in the records, and we'll go to the parents and we'll ask. And you know, you know, most of the time those requests are are ignored, and we don't get the records. So, you know, it's it, it's a source of frustration for them. And the problem that arises here uh, hasn't happened in Boundary County but could happen really uh, in any county where you have holes in these immunization records is, well, what if you do have an outbreak? You know, what if you do have a, a measles outbreak yeah. or a whooping cough outbreak? And, and whooping cough is going around the Treasure Valley right now, even as the school year is getting ready to start. If you have an outbreak, schools do have the prerogative uh, to to turn kids away if they aren't immunized when there's an outbreak going on. So that's the one time schools can take an active role and say, look, this is a public safety issue. This is a student health issue. Can't come back to school. But if you don't have the records, if you don't really know who's immunized and who isn't, it's really difficult to execute that kind of a plan in a health crisis. So that's where it really gets to be a dicey issue. So. We looked at the numbers. We looked at what's happening statewide. We, we spent a lot of time looking at Boundary County as an example. One of the things that really jumped out at me, and I did not know this, and this has kind of flown under the public policy radar, is that uh, this year it's even easier for parents to opt out of immunizations. What the rule had been for for years was um, that a, a parent could opt out of immunizations by filling out a pretty short form with the state. And you just few check boxes, a signature, an optional explanation of what you're doing, and, and optional is the key word. It's a two-page form. It's a pretty simple form. And even that is, is kind of maybe on the way out to some degree because uh, the Board of Health and Welfare has set up a rule, and it's in effect right now for this new school year, that parents need only submit a letter saying that they're opting out. They don't really need to explain much more than that. And that's a rule that will come before the legislature in 2019. It'll be up to legislators to decide whether to make that permanent or not. So we already have high opt-out rates, some of the highest in the country. And now the process is even easier. It's even The rules are even more relaxed than they were in the first place. So 
we'll see how that plays itself out. We'll see if that leads to even higher opt-out rates across the state or pockets of high opt-out rates. Talking to the nurse in Boundary County, she hasn't seen much of a difference yet. School isn't open yet. Uh, they open in early September. She hasn't seen much of a difference, but she's concerned that she thinks that this is almost a step backwards, that it's hard enough for us to track what's going on, and now it's going to be even more difficult. Dicey stuff. Um, complicated story, but yeah, we published it on Thursday. If you want to find out a little bit more about what's going on or look at some of the different rates uh, that you crunched the numbers on, I know there's a graphic attached to that story. We published it Thursday, so head over to IdahoEdNews.org. And, and we'll keep an eye on it because the Department of Health and Welfare does a really good job of putting all of these records together. I mean, it's exhaustive uh, data, but they've not been able to, last I checked, and I checked uh, yesterday, um, they've not been able to update their map with the 2017, 2018 numbers so, so that you can do a searchable uh, you know, look at what's happening in your community. As soon as that becomes, uh, as soon as that goes live, we'll update the story and I'll, I'll, I'll update my blog and let, let you know that it's available. Uh, lots of data there. Uh, and we'll, we'll keep an eye out for when that drops. Yep, be sure to keep track of it for us and, and let us know when you have an update. Uh, one more point that I wanted to get to this week. Uh, key reading score is down, unfortunately, in the state of Idaho at the time when the state is investing heavily in a reading initiative. What did you find out and what's going on? Yeah, you know, many other weeks this would be our top story, but it's been such a crazy week. Um, the latest round of scores uh, on the reading test uh, were released actually late Friday afternoon, late last week. Um, and what uh, the state reported was a drop in overall reading scores for kindergarten through third grade. And what this comes down to basically is we saw some improvement last year in reading scores in the first year of the state's launch of a program to help at-risk readers. Now we're two years into the program, and almost all of those gains have kind of melted away. So more or less, we're, we're just a touch better than we were on reading scores when the state started this initiative. And we're talking about a serious investment. What is it, some $13 it's, million? It started out as $11 million. Uh, the budget goes up to $13 million uh, for, this, for this next school year. So it's, it's not a small amount of money. And the idea is the money is supposed to be targeted to schools that have uh, higher numbers of at-risk readers. So it's based on the reading scores, the historic reading scores. Uh, schools that need the money theoretically are supposed to get a, a greater share of the money. So a couple of things kind of jumped out at me yeah. in those numbers. Uh, and and one, one milestone, and this is kind of a grim milestone, the revised numbers came out uh, for fall kindergarten reading scores from last year. And for the first time that I can find, uh, fewer than 50% of students showed up at kindergarten with the skills needed to start to pick up reading. They're showing up and they're already behind, and it, it's a they're, major they're, concern. They're showing up playing catch-up. It's the lowest, uh, you know, those are the lowest kindergarten scores we've seen in, well, in the 12 years that we can find, I mean, the 12 years that are available uh, on this test. So that's got to be a concern. And again, we're, at this point, we're talking about kids who are just coming into the school system. So it's really not a reflection on the school system. It's really a reflection on you know, how prepared those students are when they hit the door, when they first arrive in, in the school system. So that kind of jumped out at me. What we heard from the State Department of Education, to a large degree, was a concern about the reading test and a 
Yeah, that the, the drop in scores show the need to change the reading test, and that is going on. That is changing. A new reading test is going to go live. But that was how, that was the main takeaway from. That's how the state spun it. That's how mm-hmm. Superintendent Ibarra's office spun it, as they said. Test reading scores are down, but don't you worry because this just proves we need to replace the test. Yeah, but uh, the year before, when there were games, we celebrated that. We right. didn't hear anything about how crappy that test was then. So, uh, pardon me, but I'm skeptical. And, and, and the test change has been in the works for several years. And, and, and not to make light of it. I mean, a lot of, a lot of educators, too, have, have pointed out shortcomings in, in the reading test. But you're right. And I tried to kind of focus same test in on the before. apples to apples aspect of this, that we are talking about the same test in 2016, 2017, 2018. We saw improvements from, from 2016 to 2017. We saw a drop off from 2017 to 2018. That almost brings us back to where we were in 2016. The difference is pretty negligible. So, you know, you, you do have to look at the numbers and you do have to look at the trends. So we, we tried to do that. Yes, we're going to have a new reading test. Um, Yes, I've spoken to educators and the new administrators who say will be improved. we're going to get better results. We're yeah. going to get better data. We're going to have a better handle on where kids need help. I, I get all of that, and I don't and I don't trivialize that. But yeah, I think it's the same test the test as the year before, and the and the numbers are down. And 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 you can explain that away all, all you want, but it's the same test as the year before, and the numbers are down at a time when the state is investing heavily in literacy. And, it should be a concern. Right. And, and I didn't and, hear or see anything in that response that said, hey, this is a concern. Hey, we need to wake up here because we have a problem. And that's what frustrated me. Um, but anyways, how do you really feel, Clark? Yeah, really. You know, don't, don't hold back here. You know, Our, our listeners are going to have to, you know, Read tea leaves and figure out what, what you're taking. But we are getting a new test, and, and a lot of educators have said that this will be a more modern test. It will focus on more uh, factors. It will give more insight into uh, young readers and where they're struggling and where they're doing well. Uh, don't blame the old test. I mean, give me a break. And and yeah, you know, and now it becomes a little bit more challenging for us to to look at these reading scores and look at them in the long view when a new test goes into effect. Because we'll need several years of data to make sense of it. And so the new test will come out and and what do these numbers even mean? Right. Um, so, you know, it'll it'll be hard for us when we're writing about the 2019 reading to scores to compare kind of the, the, yeah. the, new, the new test to the, you know, to use your word, crappy test that we're replacing. No, I mean, that, that's the challenge that we always have in dealing with, uh, with, with test scores. We, we've dealt with it with changes with the SAT. Uh, and now, we, you know, you've got a, you know, the, the SBAC test is fairly new, so you don't have a whole lot of baseline. I get the logic of trying to change a test and improve on a test. You don't just keep a test just to get bad, yeah. bad data year after year after year. But it, it does become a challenge for us to to put this into some sort of historical context. But, but to me, the we'll, message we'll is not it. that we have a bad test. That's not the number one takeaway. To me, the two number one takeaways were 50% of the kids are showing up at kindergarten already behind, not reading at grade level. That's a major concern. And it raises a lot of questions about early education, uh, the state's role in early education, a, a perennial topic, an evergreen topic in education in the, the state. The second topic, obviously, it, it is a, a backslide from last year at a time when we're investing heavily to try and turn this thing around. And so if I was a legislator, I'd have some real concerns about where my money was going and what we were investing and, in. And at a time when 
all of those line items, and this is one of those line items, this $13 million for literacy, all of those are kind of in play. All of those are up for grabs when Might the state is away. deciding whether to change its school funding formula, streamline its funding formula. You know, legislators are going to look at every one of these line items and, and say, are we getting something really valuable that we really want to continue with and continue to target money in these areas? Or are we better off just giving the, di the districts and the charters the money and let them uh, have a little bit more, um, more latitude and, and more freedom to decide where to spend the money? So uh, th these are some, some sobering test numbers uh, at, a, at a pivotal point in, in the state's uh, literacy campaign. Yeah. Uh, it's not the first time we've talked about early literacy and literacy struggles, and it won't be the last time, so stay tuned. Um, those are the top stories I wanted to get to this week. I want to give a tip of the hat to our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, who's been busy with the State Board of Education this week. But earlier in the week, he had a really interesting story probing the separation agreement that the Bonneville School District in Eastern Idaho approved for departing Superintendent Chuck Shackett. I don't want to spoil it, but if you live okay. in eastern Idaho, you might want to seek that story out and find out what kind of deal that that school board approved. It's a um, pretty big buyout for a uh, pretty high-profile uh, school administrator, so check that out. If you're check in. that out. Thank you for Devin and Randy for pushing the issue uh, and pushing for the release of records uh, so that we could give the taxpayers more of a clear understanding about how the district is spending its money there. Uh, you want to back up to maybe Monday or Tuesday to find that story, but it is on the homepage, uh, idahoednews.org. As always, thank you so much. I know we went a little long this week, but we had a lot to get to. Thank you so much for joining us as we kind of probe this interesting uh, intersection of school politics and school policy and try to make sense of what it means in the classroom and throughout the state. We always have a lot of fun here on Extra Credit. And thank you all for joining us each and every week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.